Good morning, Lakewood, and good morning, Lakewood live stream. Together, let's turn to the Word of God as we begin Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, continuing our thoughts concerning the intervention of Jesus in our lives. I'm going to begin reading at uh, the midpoint of verse 5 and read on through verse 11. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Amen. One of the paradoxes of life in a fallen world is that it's much easier to get broken than to remain whole. It's much easier to get hurt than to be healed. We talked last week about the difficulty we have struggling with sin in a fallen world, the world, our internal struggle with the flesh, our enemy, Satan, all moving us away from God, and we take that movement with us to church, and our churches get broken as well. Between the hurt and the healer, however, there is a process that God enables us to embrace. Let me review very quickly what we talked about just a week ago. Seven steps in that process based on our text at that time in James chapter 4. First, there's a personal decision to surrender to God. Then, intentional rejection of the enemy. So, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Third is coming near to God in attitude and practice with the promise that He will come near to us. Be serious about cleansing. Wash your hands, purify your hearts, and be so sober and sorry about sin. Those difficult words from James 4, grieve, mourn, and wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom, and then humble yourself and finally Anticipate God's healing and restoration, the promise, a great promise, and He will lift you up. Now, as we return to these thoughts today, a reminder to you that there can be no lifting unless there is first lowering. There can be no restoration unless there is first repentance. There can be no rejoicing without remorse. And Jesus cannot be Lord of our lives or of our churches, of this church, unless we first abdicate that position. It can't be us and Jesus as Lord. It must be Jesus alone as Lord. Now, as I promised a week ago, as we return to our study, I want to talk with you about some of the common ways that churches in the 21st century are prone to sin, are pulled to sin, drift into sin. There's no single church <laughs> that's immune and no church that has less propensity perhaps than others all of these, uh, all of the churches that Jesus Christ uh, is blessing have a struggle with these issues. Again, it's a list, and we'll begin there, and then we'll talk about 
uh, from Hebrews 12, the design of God's discipline, what He does to achieve a return to Him, and then what genuine humility looks like and acts like. So let's take a look at common failings, a sort of a closer look at common sins of churches in the 21st century. And as I thought about this list, uh, it occurred to me that all of these fall under the general banner of self-sufficiency. So the tension is, are we going to be self-sufficient or God-sufficient? Here are some of the expressions of our self-sufficiency. Number one, taking credit that belongs to God alone. Taking credit that belongs to God alone. We live in a great nation. It's an amazing nation, blessed all out of proportion to, our, to what we deserve. Someone called it the American experiment. They call it an experiment because there's been no precedent in history of a nation that formed a constitutional republic and submitted it up front to God. It's an amazing nation. It's, and his, God's uh, influence has produced the greatest corporate wealth, the most influence, the most lasting peace, the, most, and the greatest common prosperity in all of world history. There's never been a nation like this. If you're older, you're prepared to nod to that. If you're younger, you're saying, yeah, I'm not sure I get all of that. And the reason for not getting all of that is that we, if we've grown up with it, we just sort of take it for granted. The peril, of course is that we would come, we'd fall into, as a nation, uh, the idea that we were the source of all of this blessing. God warned Israel about it in the Old Testament. America has followed, I think, Israel's tendency. Deuteronomy 8, if you're taking notes, you don't need to turn there right now. Let me just read certain excerpts from it. Moses is speaking for the Lord to Israel at the edge of the promised land. And he's essentially saying, now you be careful when you get in there, when you get into the promised land and experience all those blessings. Listen to what he says. When you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. And be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Later on, he says, then your heart will become proud. You enjoy all these blessings. You're going to get proud. You'll forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. He led you through the desert. He preserved you against all of the, I'm paraphrasing here, all the the challenges that you faced. He brought water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat. When you start enjoying all these blessings in this prosperous nation I'm going to give you, you may say to yourself, quoting now, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives the ability to produce wealth and confirms His covenant, which He swore to your forefathers as it is today. What's happened to America, what happened to Israel, what's happened to America can happen to churches. As God blesses us, we can subtly slide into taking the credit for ourselves. It's an age-old sin, still tempts us today. Here's the second one, relying on common sense rather than God's sense. Now, that's almost anti-Minnesotan to say that. We do a lot of relying on our corporate cultural thinking in this part of the country but I want to suggest to you this morning that groupthink only works if every member of the group is aligned with God. If instead we're a mixture of allegiances, then we sometimes pool our spiritual ignorance. And if we do that, pragmatism trumps piety. Whatever works. We have this little proverb in Minnesota, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. 
Well, God's word is for the believer, the true north, the compass that we follow. We come up with solutions only by his grace as we seek his will. As a result, I think I mentioned it to you a week ago, there's this little maxim that I try to remind myself of. Common sense without God's sense is nonsense, quite often. In our individualistic self-reliance, we get into trouble and we ask God to bail us out rather than seeking God in the first place. It can happen to individuals. It can happen to churches. So taking credit that belongs to God, relying on our own wisdom, our common sense rather than His wisdom. Here's a third. Putting man as the place of our trust rather than the master. Trusting in men. The 21st century church in America is deeply shaped by models and methods born of entrepreneurial business. We've come to think that success as a church is about leadership, innovation, creativity, change, efficiency, and outcomes. We've drifted perilously close to, to this statement, if it produces the most results, it must be the best practice. If it's efficient, it must be effective. As a result, if we find the right pastor or program or process or procedure, it'll all work. We can bring God's kingdom in. Problem. The church is not a business. It's not even an organization. It's an organism. It's a living entity. The product of the church is not widgets or some other manufacturing result. The product of the church is not money. The product of the church is relationships between God and man and between people. The charter of the church calls for intentional development and nurture of every segment of the organism. I'll give you an example to contrast. If you're in business, and by the way, that's an honorable calling from the Lord. If you're in business and you have an element, a, a segment, a, a division of the business, individuals within it <clears throat> that are performing poorly and not getting the job done, typically what happens is somebody gets released. You isolate the poorest performance and you remove it. You fire them. In the church, if someone's struggling, we work to redeem them no matter how long it takes. Another contrast. A business operates at the speed of business. And every business person, man or woman listening to this talk, immediately resonates with this. If you're a hard-charging business person, you're well acquainted with the speed of business. It, I mean, it just bum, 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 bum. And if you slow down, someone passes you. Then you reach into the church world. Part of my day job is the translating of culture. And part of the translating of culture is when I communicate with business people, I have to translate what it is to do the work of a mission. I serve as the president of a mission. I often have to translate, because I spent many years in the church world, the contrast between business and church. Um, I've teased some of the, my associates in the academic world and uh, picked on us, uh, academic types. I've said, you know, in the time it takes us to change our mind, an entrepreneur has built three businesses, sold them, and retired. <laughs> if you're married to a 
hard-driving business person, you've sensed their anxiety as they make that shift to a mission culture. They're looking in the rearview mirror. Why are you looking in the rearview mirror? Well, there's a turtle and it's gaining on us. There's a trauma. Business operates at the speed of business. Church operates at the speed of relationship and personal transformation. It's a very different pace. Now, the organizational aspect of church life has much to learn from believers in the business sector. So don't, don't be discouraged, businessmen and women. There's a great deal that you contribute from that culture into the church world. We can learn about <laughs> better performance and efficiencies. But bear in mind, all of you loved ones, that a church is a church, a spiritual organism that operates at the pace of the heart of God and the product is relationships. So taking credit that belongs to God, relying on our own common sense, trusting in man. Here's a fourth. We isolate or defer to leadership. We defer to pastors rather than the paraclete. We rely on the heads of the organization sometime rather than on Jesus. I'm going to give you a long sentence if you're an English teacher listening to this talk, forgive me. I've strung this one out. Listen carefully about leadership in the church. Leading an organism of eternal impact <laughs> that produces relationships, working mostly with volunteers, and attempts to retain participants of every conceivable ability or inability from all living generations. And by the way, there are now five or six, depending on how you figure that on and earth at the same time hasn't been true since the early part of Genesis. Doing all of that while the second most powerful force in the universe works to continually destroy what's being built has a difficulty. Leading in that environment has a difficulty way beyond the comprehension of those that have never been called to it. Some years ago, Peter Drucker, who was at that time the most respected voice, uh, arguably the most respected American sociologist and maybe of the 20th century, went on record in a leadership symposium and identified what was, in his opinion, the top three most difficult vocations in America and possibly the world. Top three. Here they are in ascending order. Number three on the top difficulty list, hospital administrator. Number two, educational administrator. Think Presidents, uh, think superintendents, think principals. Number one, Peter Drucker's list, local church pastor. Local church pastor. That's a secular sociologist. Multiple constituencies, multiple demands, multiple expectations. And in the case of the pastor, a targeted offense from the enemy. Adding to that in our day, a tremendous amount of competitiveness and your leaders, your pastors through the years, pastors of churches all over America, are continually subjected to the best of the best in terms of their training. So here comes a pastor whose church numbers in the tens of thousands, and he tells you how you ought to be doing it. The problem, of course, he's a great leader in a situation that's high growth, high, high change, but you might, not, you might be serving in a very different environment. Temptation is overwhelming to compromise in some way to keep the pace. Here's the question. Do you pray for your 
leaders, your spiritual leaders every day? Do you pray for them? We could, I suppose, debate whether Drucker was right, but I can promise you that he wasn't far from far off. Do you pray for your pastors daily? Taking credit, relying on our common sense, trusting man, deferring to human leadership rather than the Lord. Here's a fifth. Placing our trust in mammon, money, rather than the master. whole series of talks are warranted here. And let me again say, if God has blessed you, and He's blessed America in an amazing way, all Americans are near the top of the world's most wealthy. Even our poorest Americans are. If God has blessed you, don't, don't be ashamed of that. Thank the Lord for that. There's no shame in being successful at what you've done under the hand of the master. But here's what I want to say about money this morning. Money is a wonderful servant, but a lethal master. Does that make sense? Wonderful servant. It's got power. And that's what is so attractive about it. Money can correct things. Money can make problems go away. Money can serve people. Money can get things done that are, that are amazing. As a servant, it's a wonderful gift. As a master, it's lethal. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. He'll hate the one, love the other. He'll be devoted to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And I should interject here quickly. He's not saying you may not. He's not saying you shouldn't or it's difficult. He says it's an impossibility. You can't serve both. One will supersede the other. Keep Jesus on top. Use money as a servant. Don't let it master you. Don't let it master you as a church. And here is a sixth. And I'm going to elaborate on it a little bit more. Confusion about the purpose of the church. There's all kinds of definitions held in the hearts of believers about why the church is here. Any church, every church, the whole church. Here are some of the most common confusions. And check your own heart. All of us can kind of trip up on this, this area. Here's one. The church and its leadership are here to meet my needs. I left that church because it didn't meet my needs. A real good church should meet my needs. Well, no. The church is a place where you have the opportunity by God's grace to be equipped to meet the needs of others, to become unselfish. In the process, God promises that He'll begin to meet your needs. Okay? That's God's job. Church is a place you're trained to meet the needs of others. Here's another confusion. The church is here to honor my preferences. There's nothing wrong with preferences. We all have them. But that's not the central purpose of the church. The church is an organism that uh, provides the opportunity to overcome our self-centeredness and lean into the preferences of others. Serve them. Preferences aren't wrong, but they're not foundational. Here's a third. The church is here to serve my generation by guarding against change. Mm. Let's close in prayer. Just kidding. No, the church is transgenerational. <laughs> we respect those that have gone before. We prepare those who follow. We proclaim a never-changing message with ever-changing methods. Let me say it again. We proclaim a never-changing message with ever-changing methods. Some years ago, I was asked to uh, guest lecture in our, the church I was lead pastor of in our church's youth program. It was an amazing program. I know that you have a terrific group of youth here. My wife and I have prayed for you. Uh, we have part of our family that attends here. It's part of your family, so we feel connected. You've got great youth. 
You do. We had great youth in the church that I was serving. And uh, so I thought about what I was going to say to them. And I, on the given time when I was asked to, to, to share with the youth, I jarred them a little bit. I said this. So what are you guys going to do when the children in the nursery grow up and change your music? And they kind of, their eyebrows went up, and then they started to, to chuckle a little bit. That's just one area of change, and it happens in every single generation. There are little people in Lakewood's nursery who are going to grow up and say as uh, adolescents and as young adults, you know, that music from the 2020s, that is so lame. It's just, <laughs> who even could listen to that? And the youth of today are going to say, no, wait a second. You know, that's some music. Every generation has music, language of the soul. That's just one area where change occurs. God tests us. He says, are you going to, you're going to reach out to new hearts? You're going to reach out in new ways. Now, we don't throw everything away. We retain the best in his kingdom. But we have to be careful. All of us, all of us tend to, um, oh, maybe a bit strong. We tend to deify what we like, you know? The only methods that are exempt from change are those few methods that God has commanded in His Word. One is preach the Word. That's transgenerational. All the way back to the beginning of the church, all the way back to the beginning of God's voice to mankind, public preaching. But there's just a lot of stuff that passes away. My wife tells me that 8-track tapes aren't coming back. I don't know. I've held out hope. Some of you are going, what's an 8-track tape? Don't worry, they're not coming back. The church is here to reach the hearts of every generation. Here's another. The church is here to support the values represented in my politics. Oh, no. Jesus Christ is not affiliated with any political party. Jesus Christ is not American, although he has blessed America. Jesus Christ is not Anglo, Black, Hispanic, or Asian. He came to earth born to the nation of Israel. I'm speculating, but it's highly likely that he had light brown skin with olive undertones, typical of that race. It's a melanin factor. No, Jesus is above, way above, all earthly systems of governance. He's the creator and Lord of all, and his kingdom is not of this world. So what's the church here to do? Well, among other things, the church is here as a preservative. The church in every system of governance on earth, and I've already said that I'm rejoicing in the Lord, that I've had the privilege to grow up in a constitutional republic, even though that's changed. That's a subject for another series that's drifted. So I'm not being anti-American and saying I'm being pro-Jesus in what I'm saying. His church is here on earth, no matter the governance that supersedes it in, or rather that governs it in the, in the world system, wherever it is on the, in the world, it's here by God's grace to reveal the limitations of that form of governance, to correct injustices, and to preserve societies from self-destruction. Why? so that the Holy Spirit has time to redeem humanity. That's why the delay. So that Jesus Christ can redeem us. 
But remember, <laughs> said it in another talk some years ago, Jesus doesn't come to take sides. He comes to take over. And he wants to do that for our nation. He wants to do that in our hearts. And he wants to do that in our churches. So the church is here to honor, revere, and represent the Lord Jesus in the world. It's not about us. It's just not about us. It's fundamentally and forever about him, his will, his way, his agenda, his glory. So whatever the cause, when we as believers move away or run away or drift away from God, the result he promises will be discipline. Now, that brings us, you've been very gracious, you've been waiting, brings us back to Hebrews 12. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you. What's the design of God's discipline? Well, number one, it's always loving. Always loving. It's hard. I grew up as a kid with two brothers. By the way, it was their fault. <laughs> anyway. Sometimes we were disciplined. Sometimes it was all of us. Sometimes it was one of us. Sometimes it was me. I never enjoyed it. Never enjoyed it. We don't enjoy typically God's discipline, but it comes from a heart of love. It's always loving. Secondly, it's for our good. It's for our good. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good. God disciplines us for our good. Third thing about it, God's discipline will always move us towards holiness. Always move us away from sin towards himself. Always, 100% of the time. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. And a fourth insight about the design of God's discipline. It's always productive. Always productive. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. That's God's discipline. It's loving. It's for our good. It moves us towards holiness. And it's spiritually productive. It's good stuff. It's not easy, but it's very, very good. So what do we do when we believe God is disciplining us? We repent and humble ourselves and run as fast as we can to him. That's what I want to close this talk uh, discussing, the behavior of repentance, what humility looks like and acts like. So what does, pardon, for your, if you're a note taker, <laughs> pardon all the lists today, but I think it'll be helpful for you to see the sequence. So what does humility look like and act like? What is the behavior of repentance? Four or five things. Repentance begins with remorse, genuine sadness over our sin. We own it. We talked a little bit about that a week ago. You've been praying about it. You've been uh, discussing the patterns involved in repentance. Back to James 4 for a moment, verse 9. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Remember that the mess we make when we sin, put Jesus on the cross. That's why God takes it so seriously. Repentance is always accompanied by remorse. All the way through the pattern of Scripture, Josiah wept, Ezra wept, Nehemiah wept. The New Testament churches were called to that somberness. 
when we sin, we need to be sad about that. And that leads to the second step, confession without rationalization. Confession. The word confess is con means together, fess means to say. Say together. Agree with. You're probably aware of it, loved ones, but no matter what our sin, what, what sin in our life or in our gatherings, Jesus is never surprised by it. When we confess sin, God never ever goes, oh, I didn't know about that. He's eternal. He's been with mankind since the beginning. He knows our hearts. So con confession, the benefit of confession is the restoration of a relationship, and it's initiated by us. We tell him that we understand that we've sinned. We own it. No excuses. We struggle with that. Way back in the garden, God shows up in the garden after the sin. Adam, what happened? Well, I confess my wife did it. Eve, what happened? Well, let me just add to the confession. The serpent did it. Paraphrasing here. Every parent, I talked last week a lot about the parenting task, you know. Every parent, every grandparent knows when they are hearing a confession or not. Or not. Well, I'm sorry that my sister got into my stuff and I was forced to respond. That's not a confession. We might amp it up to another level. It's really too bad that you made that rule. Mom, Dad, I couldn't help going over the line on that one. That's, those are not confessions. Those are not confessions. When we come to God and say, God, look at this mess that you've put me in. That's not a confession. Confession is, God, I've sinned. I'm sorry. That's on me. It's nobody else's fault. I had a choice. I chose to walk away from you. I sinned. That's confession. I agree with you, God, in your opinion about my sin. The behavior of repentance begins with remorse. It proceeds to confession without rationalization. No excuses. I sinned. Third step is a recommitment of trust in the Lord. Now, I believe, loved ones, that whom the Lord saves, he keeps. So when you surrender to Jesus Christ and you turn your life over to him, he takes you and he takes you all the way to eternity. So be clear about that when I say what I'm going to say next. As for our wavering self-commitment and our allegiance, that needs to be regenerated and reaffirmed. You understand what I'm saying? Salvation is forever. But our recommitment of trust in the Lord needs to be a daily thing. It needs to be part of our repentance. Then there is forth a quiet waiting for restoration. We quiet ourselves before the Lord and wait for Him to speak. I'm so excited for you and the event that you have planned for this coming week. And I know that for those of you in leadership, you're not all certain about the structure of it. Because we're sort of used to in America doing all of our planning, and you have excellent planners here. But what you've planned is an event where you're asking God to show up and do what He's planned. So it's a little scary, you know. God, what do you have planned? Well, He'll let you know. But I'm so excited because a church is willing to do that, God will respond to. We wait for Him to speak. And then 
when He speaks, when He lifts you up, you go forth in humility and speak of Him, and speak of Him. A restored church boasts in the Lord. Not so much in budgets, buildings, leaders, legacy, all that stuff that we can... It's not wrong stuff, you know. We boast in the Lord, though. And here's something about humility. A humble person, a humble church, doesn't think more highly of himself than they ought to think. Most everybody gets that. But here's the corollary. A humble person, a humble church, doesn't think more lowly of themselves than they ought. See, it's not above or, you know, deify or dregs down here. True humility doesn't think about self much at all. True humility thinks about Jesus. The preoccupation isn't so much with self. And we struggle with that sometimes. We sometimes think more highly of ourselves, and then we think, oh, oh, I better self-correct, and I better appear humble. So we become self-effacing. But we're still self-focused. True humility is just so preoccupied with the Lord that self doesn't spend much time at the center anymore. And the conversations in the aisles and in the marketplace and where we go to and fro often turns to Jesus. Self-assured leaders plan, sometimes pray. Humble, restored churches pray and pray and pray and then plan. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. So next week, solemn assembly, don't be afraid. Don't run from Jesus. Run to Him. That's what you plan. Do that. Be honest about any sin that He brings to mind and be sorry. Tell Him you're sorry. No excuses. Recommit your trust in the Lord. Quiet yourself in His presence. Purpose to face the future with a commitment to boast in Him. Invite Jesus to take back your life, to take back your church, to take back His church and allow Him to lift you up and He will.